stand. You can be seated this morning. So in this sermon series called King and Kingdom, we're working through, kind of line by line, verse by verse, through the Gospel of Matthew. And we come today um, to uh, one very, very important passages or chapters within Scripture. Uh, last week we saw Jesus is, is walking past this sea. It's actually the Sea of Galilee. And he calls two sets of brothers randomly to them, sovereignly from Jesus. He comes across these two sets of brothers who are fishermen. They're from a fishing town or a fishing village. And he summons these young men, these probably teenagers, to come and to follow after him. And the Bible tells us that immediately they drop their nets and they follow after Jesus. Following this powerful scene, the Bible tells us right here in these passages that we just read that that Jesus continues his ministry throughout all of Galilee um, with these four disciples. And like many rabbis, uh, Jesus... Um, and his his later disciples and even the Apostle Paul, when they went into places and villages and cities, the first place that they would typically go share the gospel was in the Jewish synagogues. And so the Bible tells us here in this passage that Jesus is traveling from place to place, city to city, village to village, and is speaking about himself, declaring that he is the king, but ultimately is calling people to repentance, to abandon their sinful ways and their former ways of living in order to follow after this Jesus, the Messiah. And so we see from this passage that Jesus is doing this, and as he is doing this, uh, many people are bringing uh, the sick and those who are demon-possessed and experiencing all different sorts of illnesses, they're bringing them to Jesus, and Jesus is able to heal them. Throughout gospel, the Gospel of Matthew, you see from the very beginning chapters to the very end that as Jesus is king, he carries with him um, divine authority. We've already seen in these earlier chapters that when Jesus speaks, follow me, what do the people do? They immediately follow. When Jesus heals diseases, what do those diseases do? They leave those people. If someone comes to Jesus and they're, um, you know, demon-possessed, then Jesus can tell those demons to leave, and they leave. Jesus comes with great authority. Why? Because Jesus is God. And so in chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, Jesus sees these crowds. So he has these four disciples by now, and he also has other people who are probably following him, and then he has these crowds of people. So Jesus sees them, the scripture tells us, and he goes up on a mountain. Read it. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountains, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Just a quick side note to geek out on you a little bit. Um, Typically during this time, whenever a rabbi, a teacher, would come and speak in the synagogues or in these cities and villages, typically they would go into these small little synagogues. They weren't always these gigantic temples, but they were these small little rooms set aside where there was a Torah scroll. But there was also something in the center or to the side called the Moses seat. And this rabbis would come in, whoever was speaking that day, they would come in and sit down. And that's where they would deliver the sermon. So Jesus is up on top of this mountain. He sees this crowd, and what does Jesus do? He takes a seat to teach. Now, I think that can be difficult for us because our, our typical mode of teaching um, has been for the preacher to stand up. I even had a lady at one of my former churches 
um, she told me that when she was looking for a church, that she really liked this one church that she was going to, but she decided to stop going there because the preacher always sat down when he preached. And she had a major problem with that. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's the way that Jesus typically did it. All right, That's very common place for these great teachers um, to sit down while they are preaching. So Jesus sits down, crowd in front of him, but the Bible tells us specifically that Jesus begins to speak to his disciples. In the Gospel of Matthew, we see about five different sermons, and this is one of those sermons. This sermon has typically been labeled as the, the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus goes up on a mountain and he speaks a sermon or preaches a sermon. Now we only have about three chapters. It goes from five, six, seven um, of this sermon. But it's it's believed by most scholars, most historians, that, that literally this sermon probably lasted hours. This is the Cliff Notes version, if you will, of the sermon that Jesus gave. They were probably there all day as Jesus spoke to these people. So I want to stop your complaints about how long that I preach because I'm just like Jesus, Chris. All right, I'm watching you. All right, so you got to get that. This is much longer than what we have in these chapters. And yet Jesus is, is speaking again. Who is he speaking to? He is speaking to his disciples. In this, we will hear the greatest sermon that has ever been preached by the greatest preacher. His name is Jesus. He's the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the one that knitted these people together even in their mother's womb. And yet he stands there in the flesh proclaiming this gospel, that he is that gospel. A lot of times um, when I was thinking about this this week, and we're in a political season, but I kind of uh, was thinking in a working title myself that this is, this is kind of the, the state of the kingdom address that Jesus is about to give. See, Jesus has been inaugurated as the king. The baton has come. The forerunner came. John the Baptist declaring that there is one that is coming that will take away the sins of the world. Jesus steps onto the scene. God shows and anoints and says, this is my son who I am well pleased. And Jesus takes that baton of ministry and begins to preach in all of these places. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. But notice that as we go through this over the next several months, that, that Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is very different than how he has preached up until this moment. Again, he has been preaching to lost people. He's been calling lost people, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. But this particular sermon is not written to lost people. Are there lost people in the crowd? Yes. But who is Jesus' primary target? Is his disciples. You know, that's much like what we gather here on Sunday mornings. Uh, we're not seeker sensitive. Okay? Uh, we're not going to adjust the sermon just to, to entertain the lost people and try to some way woo you with our spectacular building here. Okay? 
Our prayer is, is to preach the gospel, to encourage and equip the believer. And if lost people are gathered and they are quickened by the movement of the Holy Spirit, then so be it. But our Sunday morning gathering is primarily for Jesus and secondarily for us as believers. And that, that comes from an illustration of what we're simply trying to see here and what Jesus is doing. Do we want people to be saved? Yes. If that happens on a Sunday morning, praise be to God. Shout out hallelujah. We're on the aisles. Well, don't run the aisles, okay? But get excited about that. But that is our, our primary focus is to worship Jesus and to equip and to edify the saints. Jesus seemingly is doing that. He changes the way that he's been preaching. See, ladies and gentlemen, when Jesus comes, he comes in a new exodus. He, he inaugurates with his coming a new exodus. He reveals to those who are listening that he is the true and better Moses. Moses would speak about this in Deuteronomy, um, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. He says this, The Lord your God will rise up or raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. See, already in the Old Testament, Moses is knowing there is a true and better prophet that is coming. And ultimately, Jesus is that true and better prophet. So we can kind of compare these two lives of these great men and ultimately God in the flesh, Jesus. See, Moses came as a baby and escaped execution by Pharaoh. Jesus, as a baby, and escapes execution by Herod. Moses calls people to follow him. Jesus calls God's people to follow him. Moses leads God's people out of physical slavery. Jesus leads God's people out of spiritual slavery. Moses leads God's people through the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus defeats the wilderness in 40 days. Moses goes up on a mountain alone to receive authority. Jesus goes up on a mountain, as we'll read today, with others. Why? Because he is the authority. Moses was leading God's people to the promised land. Jesus is the promised land. Moses stands up before the people and gives the law, but we will see over and over in this that Jesus stands before the people and he gives the gospel. See, Jesus begins to explain to these disciples that are now following after him what it means to be a citizen in God's kingdom. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a disciple? Now that you've called me, Jesus, to follow you, what does that mean? What is fellowship? What is citizenship? These are the things that Jesus is going to explore within inside of these passages. See, Jesus is not saying in the Sermon on the Mount, if you do these things, you will be saved. Jesus is going to proclaim through the Sermon on the Mount, because I have saved you, this is how we live. And there's a big difference between that. Look at verse um, 3 here. I'm going to kind of look at verse 3 and 4, kind of smashed together today. But I need to describe and explain one word as we go further. In verse 3, in, in the next several verses, we know these as the Beatitudes. They begin with this word, blessed. Blessed. If you have your own Bible today, you mark up in your Bible circle, square, highlight the word blessed. In my, my sermon preparation this week, I want you to know where I've spent most of my time has been in that word. It really threw me for a loop in, in my studying of this 
week on what it means to be blessed. What is Jesus saying? He gathers up these people. He takes a seat on a rock, I think. But he takes a seat, people gathering around. We don't know how many people were there. But it's, it's believed that probably hundreds, if not thousands. But Jesus is speaking directly to his disciples. He sits down and, and he looks at them. And I like a hands-on Jesus. So I just imagine him kind of, you know, touching the guys around him, looking them in the eyes. And he says, blessed, blessed. Now, traditionally, scholars, pastors, people a lot smarter than I am, have translated this word, and even in probably some of your Bible translations, they, they will read this as happy, they translate blessed as happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God, or happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, as I was studying, like I said, and I hadn't really spent much time on this until this moment and season in my life, but really began to study in the Greek and all those sorts of things, um, what does that word mean? Does it mean happy? Now, I want you to know, uh, the guys that I greatly respect, um, great preachers, great teachers, men who have written phenomenal books, will translate that word as happy. And in their defense, when these guys are mentioning the term happening, they're not talking about this kind of ebb and flow, bipolar happiness that we have created in America. Okay? They're talking about true biblical joy. But I, this morning, I'm going to put all my cards out on the table. I know this is dangerous every time you do this. I don't agree with them. And there's a minority view of scholars this morning who, who don't translate that word literally to mean happy. In other cases... They would, but that, that this word also has a, a deeper depth. And so if, if you disagree with me, you can send those emails to Pastor Justin. Um, talk to somebody else. Now, you can talk to us at missional community groups this week. I'd love to talk about you. But I'm going to go ahead and tell you where I'm at on that because I think that that's fair to you. But looking at the context of the whole of Scripture, um, I would say that Jesus is not starting out this, this monumental sermon, this inaugural huge address to his followers by stating, Happy. Happy are you. You know, happy... Um, are the poor in spirit. To, to me, that's a paradox that I, I can't really wrap my mind around. I know that God is cool with that and all those sorts of things. But, but as we, we dive further into this, I don't believe that Jesus is starting out this first sermon declaring something about our emotions, but is ultimately declaring something from His sovereign will and from His sovereign plan. I believe that Jesus is literally in these first statements is making a divine judgment toward these individuals. Now, if you believe it's happy, man, we'll see each other in heaven. It's all good. It's, not, it's, it's an open-handed issue. But it's very important to where I'm heading uh, this morning. See, other scholars, the, probably the minority, would say that this word blessed here is not the word for happy, but it, it, it literally, or is a better translated, is approved. And that's the school of thought that I would hold to in my convictions uh, this morning. That may change tomorrow. But when we look at this, I believe that Jesus is declaring something about himself and his power and his authority first before he is going to say something about you and I. I believe that Jesus is saying, Approved are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Approved are those 
who mourn, for they shall be comforted. See, I think that this is a blessing that God is placing and imputing into his followers, into his disciples. He sees them as blessed. He sees them as approved. Jesus isn't saying, if you do these things, you will enter in the kingdom of heaven. He is saying, because you are my children, because you have been approved by me, because you have been approved by God, then you will receive. And these are the characters or the marks of what it means to believe in Jesus or to be a true follower of Jesus. Who is Jesus speaking to? Disciples, but they come from a, a historical or religious lineage of being Jewish people. See, the Jews believed that they were good. They believed that they had it all together. They believed that they were righteous. They believed that they were deserving um, of God's blessings and promises simply because they were ethnic Jews. On, on top of them, most of them, them were devout. You know, we have something called cultural Christianity in America and other places as well, um, where you're just Christian by name, okay? But you're not really a follower of Jesus. Um, that would have been very rare for Jews. Most Jews, most, there are always, you know, people on the fringe, but most, if you consider yourself to be a Jew, you are an Orthodox practicing Jew. Like we discussed last week, you probably had most of the Old Testament memorized. I mean, you believed this stuff. You lived this stuff. You were faithful in this. So, if anyone was worthy to join Jesus in his kingdom, logically, it would be the Jews. They were good people. They had it together. They believed in Yahweh. But if anybody was, is, is going to get in, it's like our grandmas. They're all going to heaven, right? Surely it's the Jewish people because they're good men and when they faithfully believe and practice this stuff and yet Jesus is going to respond to a group of people that believe that, probably even still his disciples, and he's going to tell them, you're wrong. You're wrong. You, you've missed it. That does not get approval. Let me tell you what gets approval from God. Look at the passage. Blessed are those are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Or, as I would translate it, uh, you know, approved. Jesus is looking at these people and he's saying, you're approved. You have citizenship. Why? Because you're poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Approved are those who mourn. Those who have citizenship are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, how many of you guys, show of raise of hands, I promise you we're not going Pentecostal this morning or anything, but if you have ever heard these two verses, raise your hand. Blessed are the poor, blessed are those who mourn. Alright? Now, I've, I've grown up in church and did not become a Christian until I was 19, but pretty much my entire life, I've heard those passages. Haven't you? I mean, they're very common passages. Um, a lot of times, for the instance, for the first passage, and, and this may not be true of you, you may have had a really great teacher. 
But in a lot of situations that I've been in, in regards to blessed are the poor, for they shall inherit the kingdom of heaven, um, a lot of that dialogue and discussion, or where I heard that quoted, was when there was somebody poor around us. Or when they were speaking about poverty. Right? So the commercial comes on television, it shows the homeless person, um, or, or, or you hear somebody talking about homeless ministry, all these sorts of things, and they stand up before you and they say, blessed are the poor, meaning physical poverty, for they will inherit the kingdom of God. Anybody ever heard it used like that? Or the second one, blessed are those who mourn. Where do you hear that? What? Funerals, right? You have probably been to very few funerals in Kentucky. One, everybody in Kentucky goes to heaven at a funeral. Okay? You're going to eat fried chicken at some point. All right? They're going to sing some Vince Gill song. All right? Um, or, or I can only imagine. Like, I can only imagine when we never hear that song again. That's the way I feel about it. But you're going to hear Psalm 23, and you're probably going to hear, Blessed are those who mourn. You got people weeping. We've, we've been there. And this serious, not to take away from, from those moments. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let me break down the first one. If Jesus is speaking about physical poverty right there, then every one of us who are involved in homeless ministry, feeding the hungry, helping poor people, need to stop. Every one of us. You need to stop ministering to the poor if that's what Jesus is saying. Because who gets the kingdom of heaven? Poor people. So we all need to sell everything we've got. We need to help no one. We need to live on the side of the street because it is a guarantee. These are definitive truths that our Lord is speaking here. They're not up for debate. And yet he is, he is saying, blessed are the poor as it was often quoted to me, but they often left off the second part, which says what? Poor in spirit. Poor in spirit. If you've ever been to a funeral where someone has said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, and they were speaking about the mourning of those people and the loss of a loved one, I want you to know they did not use that passage in a biblical sense. It was taken way out of context. Now, don't be a jerk that goes up to the preacher after would be like, you know, I've exegeted this passage in the Sermon on the Mount, and that's wrong, and you used it. Don't be a jerk, okay? Don't do that. But I just, I want you to be smart Christians and to be able to sit there and go, hmm, bless them, all right? Don't be a jerk, though. We got enough of those. Most of them, never mind, I won't say that. All right, so <clears throat> Jesus is not discussing the materially poor or those who are, are mourning because they're having a bad day. Um, he is not discussing those who are materially poor or, or, or those who are materially rich. Jesus is not discussing people who are, are mourning because their dog died or their favorite character on a movie died. He's not speaking about those things, and yet that is often the way that it will get translated. Jesus is speaking to something much deeper, ladies and gentlemen. And it is good news for us. Jesus is speaking to the very condition of our hearts. Jesus is speaking of spiritual poverty. 
Jesus is speaking of spiritual poverty. He is speaking of spiritually mourning. And let me explain that. The term poor there in in the Greek um, literally means to crouch, to cringe, to to cower down, to hide oneself in fear. Um, it's 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 an adjective that describes one who crouches or cowers and, and is used as a noun to, to mean literally the word beggar. These poor were unable to meet their basic needs and so they were forced to depend on others in society. Shrinking, begging, in shame. I'm not talking about a professional beggar here. I'm not so- talking about someone that's using the system. Alright? We're talking about not a, a criminal or, or someone who is lazy because we've all heard the, I don't know, maybe an urban legend about the guy who acts like a homeless person but lives in the mansion. Anybody ever heard that before? That people make like hundreds of thousands of dollars begging? Not talking about that joker. Alright? We're talking about people that are so poor that are so disabled, they are so unskilled, so naked that they don't even have the, the capability to work. These are, are people who have no skill, no talent, no trade. They have absolutely nothing. And they beg in shame, not in pride. In the classical Greek used, um, it means referring to a person who's reduced to total destitution. Who crouched in the corner and is begging. And as he holds out one hands, one of his hands, he is ashamed of being recognized. We see this in Matthew chapter 5 verse 3 when Jesus says you are poor in the spirit. You are a beggar in the spirit. Jesus is saying these these people who are spiritually poor, who are poor in the spirit, um, recognize that they are completely and utterly dependent on God. See, this type of better beggar is so dependent on everyone else or they will have absolutely nothing. This week as I was kind of meditating again for hours on, on these passages and specifically the word blessed, but just looking at this passage, I, I would have hated for somebody to have driven by my house that day. Because I had our bay windows open. I was sitting at our, our table working and looking at these things. Now, I like to, as one of my professors used to say, we've got to exegete the passage. Or, or we got to exegete the image. That we need to exegete the passage, but try it in your mind to faithfully paint a picture. And so literally, I'm sitting here typing. I was thinking, okay, beggar. Thinking about a beggar who is ashamed. Who does not want to be recognized by this who is completely disabled, who is utterly incapable of doing anything on their own. And so I was sitting there and I was typing and all of a sudden I I felt my hand. You ever have one of those kind of -of out-of-body experiences? And I I was sitting there and I was typing and I, I just, I raised my hand at my kitchen table, kind of twist my face, thinking about that picture and then tears began to roll down my face thinking about the utter embarrassment. We're not talking about the person when you stop at a stop sign that runs up to your car, like, give me something. We're not talking about the person who's like waving the sign. 
See, this kind of beggar that Jesus is speaking about, he's, he's speaking about the, the beggar that is mangled, that is laid up in a corner in darkness, that is probably covering over their face. They're, they're wearing a hood over their face. And, and out of the darkness, there, there comes a, a small hand reaching out for some sort of help and dependence because they know that unless someone else takes care of them, they are left for dead. That is the kind of beggar that Jesus is speaking about. That's the kind of poverty that Jesus is speaking about. Those are the kind of episodes and the kinds of situations and the kind of people that Jesus is saying, approved are the beggar in spirit. For they, or theirs, is the kingdom of heaven. See, Jesus is saying... This man is approved. This woman is approved. Who, who has come to the end of themselves realizing their spiritual bankruptcy. This realization causes them to see themselves as poor and to mourn their sin. See, the mourning here is not the loss of a loved one. The mourning that Jesus is talking about here in the Sermon on the Mount is mourning for yourself and ultimately mourning for the decrepit, wretched sin that you have committed. This is what Jesus is talking about. In a culture like ours, where we gloat in our achievements, right? And if you've watched any political debate, what do those brothers and sisters talk about? All the stuff they've done. This is what I have done. And when I am president, this is what I will do. I know how to do this because in Ohio, this is what we did. Right? And when I'm president, this is what I'm going to... In a, in a culture that prides itself on achievements, right? You, I mean, my kid is an honor roll student. All right? We've got... You've got to have your family now in stick figure form on the back of your vehicle so we all know how many people to come kill or steal from at your house. I mean, whatever it is... <laughs> Man, that's scary. Okay? We, we, put our, we have trophy cases and trophy rooms in, in a place where we lift high the name of self, where we celebrate our independence, where we celebrate our self-sufficiency, where we give trophies for participation. Yes, son, I'm proud of you. You lost every game. Here's a trophy. True? Does no one else think that's weird? Son, you're the first loser. Here. Here's a trophy. Does that make you feel better? Right? We, we, this is the kind of culture that we live in. This translates into the church. Where we think it is because we have done something to gain access into God's kingdom. From the very get-go, Jesus is looking at his disciples. And he's saying this. He's like, this struggling is not about you. This is If you reach anything in life, it is because of my grace. We believe, even within the church, man, I struggle with this. I don't know about you. Where I think I've done something or I'm deserving in some way of God's grace. That we've had, you know, more good works than bad. That we've walked an aisle. That we've repeated some prayer, that we've got dunked in some water, that we stopped smoking, drinking, or engaging in immorality. 
You know, we, we served. We served faithfully. We're there every Sunday, every Wednesday. We're there. We participate. And so therefore, because we have participated, God rewards us. No. This is not what Jesus is speaking of here. Jesus is declaring no. Jesus declares no. Not, not approved are those men and women who think they have something to bring to this. No, approved are those who have come to the realization and are mourning um, their own sin. That they are to the point where they're, they're spiritually in a corner begging out to God. When they compare themselves to the glory of God and they look upon their wretchedness, Jesus is saying no, approved is the person who lives like that and comes to that understanding of complete and other spiritual bankruptcy. There is not one person in heaven. You need to get this this morning. I need to get this this morning. There is not one person in the kingdom of God who has not come to the realization that they are nothing but a beggar before God. And Jesus is saying, those are my sons and daughters. When you begin to compare yourself to God and His greatness and, and who He is and that He is King, that you are not, that He is God, that you are not, that He is holy and that you are not, that He is righteous, that you are not, that in this moment, when you begin to see yourself as the, the wretched, decrepit man or woman that you are, that is when you will begin to understand how great and glorious the grace and the mercy of God. There is not one who will enter into heaven who has ever thought or, or ultimately believes that they have something to bring to God that was worthy enough for him to open up and to ultimately to die upon a cross, absorb their sin, because man, that one was good enough. Jesus is declaring something much more. Last week we covered the calling of Peter, Andrew, James, and John. They were fishermen. Jesus says, follow me, and they follow him. If you look at the Gospel of Luke, the retelling or another kind of viewpoint of that same story, another episode happens in it, and it's so cool. When Jesus shows up and he looks at Peter and he says, hey, follow me, there's this whole kind of fishing episode that takes place as well. But the Bible tells us that when, when, when Peter sees Jesus work this miracle, in that same moment, he says this in, in Luke 5.8, but when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, depart from me. I am a sinful man, O Lord. See, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, that is the realization of what spiritual poverty looks like. It's this moment of going, man, you are, you are God. It covers with it a, a spiritual posture, if you will, by that we are covering our face and and and. And, and turning from God's glory and lifting our hands and as the scripture would say is repeating this idea of God have mercy on me a sinner ladies and gentlemen this morning we have nothing to bring to the table there is nothing good in me outside of the person and work of Jesus you talk about countercultural yet that is what Jesus is declaring. See, Jesus is delivering this sermon to people who consider themselves spiritually rich. Of course we're in. We don't eat catfish. Right? 
Of course we're in. I don't start fires on the Sabbath. Of course we're in. We're good people. We're we're spiritually rich. Hey, God, and, and this is the way that, that a lot of uh, things, I think, since Satan and death has embedded itself even within Christendom. That if you ask people, why should God let you into the heaven? And, you, and they begin to regurgitate how good they are. And Jesus is saying to those very people, you are not good. You are terrible. I love you. And you are terrible people. And I am the chief of the terribleness. And that's what Jesus is declaring until you hit rock bottom and realizing that that we have nothing to bring to the table. You have nothing to bring to the cross of Jesus. But a wretched, black, darkened heart. In our school of thinking, what we like to call this, we, we gave some fancy term. It's called total depravity. It's the literal inability to do anything good outside of ourselves. Now the thing is about total depravity, it consumes all of your very nature. The scripture tells us that your mind is on evil continually. The, the scripture would tell us that, that our hearts are deceptive. That the book of Ephesians would tell us that we are children of wrath. That we're just the walking dead living these lives. That is how wretched and screwed up and messed up and sinful that we are. It is not simply in our actions, but ladies and gentlemen, it is your very nature. When you see your unregenerated, you know, regenerated kids do bad things, you should not be astonished. They are children of wrath. Their very nature is broken. Some of you right now, you're like, man, this guy's crazy. You're lost. True believers come to this moment at some point in their existence. They come and they begin to not just simply not want to sin, but are grieving the sins of yesterday. They're grieving. They're, they're mourning. And that necessarily mean that you have to break down in, in physical tears. Not everybody are criers, but in a spiritual sense, they are mourning not just the sins of their past, but man, they're, 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 they're mourning the sins of this morning. They're lost in them. They're, they're grieving. They, they come to this understanding that I'm, I am completely and utterly depraved. Now, I want you to get this this morning because this is something that can be very misconstrued. Even by God's common grace, as we called it, we're not as bad as we could be. Even lost people. See, we deserve the full force of divine wrath this morning. Every one of us. We come to the cross with nothing in our hands. We come realizing I am wretched. But what? God's grace is deeper still. This realization does not paralyze us. I'm not saying that we need to mope through the rest of our lives. But what I'm saying is it actually compels us and encourages us because Jesus is speaking about His grace. He could even maybe even translate here, grace. Approve. Can you earn grace? No. Can you earn approval from God? No. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, you've been trying to work your way to the kingdom of God your entire lives. And I want you to know that 
economy and system is broken. It is messed up. And yet God is saying in this moment, Jesus is, is looking at these men and women who are following him. Many of them will go even to the point of death. And he's saying, guess what? You're approved. And you know why you're approved? It's because I've graced you to make you. I've illuminated your eyes and your hearts to come to the realization that you are nothing but in me. You have everything. What does he give those wretched people? The kingdom of heaven. Alright? The kingdom of heaven. What does he give those who mourn over their sin? He gives them comfort. You understand how crazy those rewards are? We live in a culture based around incentives. You see this in the school system all the time. Show up, here's a piece of candy. If we didn't show up when I was a kid, you got beat. <laughs> right? Now they show up, they give candy for everything. Oh, you brought a pencil. Here, Johnny. Here's a sticker. You get five stickers by the end of the week. You get to have a party. Right? I mean, we, we have built this idea on incentives. That is not the gospel. The gospel is, is that your good works are filthy rags. People love it when I explain what that means. The little translation there is, is, is that your good works are as filthy rags. Filthy rags is the picture of a pile of ancient menstrual feminine hygiene products in a pile. And Jesus says, your good works, like your check the box, I'm good, check. Paul would say it's, it's dung. And Jesus is saying, approved, where you realize you can't. You can't be good enough, you can't be smart enough, you can't do the not right things enough. That's why the, the great sermon, or the great song, I love this hymn, we're going to sing it in just a few minutes. Rock of Ages, when it says this. See, we sing these words, and now you're going to understand them. In the song, in the hymn, Rock of Ages, listen to this verse. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I too, the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. What is that describing? Someone who has come to the beautiful, gracious, loving knowledge of saving faith. And when they do that, we always start out with who we are. And then Jesus God shows us who we are. But we must first come to that realization that I have nothing to bring and it's to the cross I cling. I am naked before Jesus. Cringed, hiding my face in embarrassment, ashamed of my wrongdoing and my wretchedness. Knowing the only way that I'm going to live, take another breath, is for Him to blow it in my lungs. See, our tendency is to forget this over time. And remember when you first became a believer and before the church churched you up and told you all the things that you weren't supposed to be doing now, right? I'm talking about like when you first became a Christian. 
Especially for those of you who, you know, were extremely rebellious. Our tendency is to forget that moment. Forget what we used to be like. And so when we come across people in church or in society who are wrestling with the things that we used to wrestle with, our, our first temptation is not to be gracious. It is to think that we're better than. Right? How many of you, don't raise your hands, you were like the drunk, and now when you see drunk people, you immediately go, those idiots. Look at that idiot over there. Running naked through the streets. And you used to be that guy. Or, or you, this is a big one. Like you see the womanizer who's bragging, but all the nasty thing that he's doing, or the way that he speaks to women. And you used to be that guy. But immediately you've cast him into hell with your judgment. See, that's the temptation for us as individuals. It's the temptation for us as the church. John is going to speak to this in the book of Revelation in chapter 3 when he says this to the church at Laodicea. Listen to what he tells this church. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. See, that's our temptation is to eventually to become that way. Right? How many of you have been serving Jesus for quite a while and you, you, you got it down pretty good and then something bad happens to you? It doesn't go exactly the way that you got it planned. And you're like, but Jesus, I'm a good guy. Look at all this stuff we're doing. Right? Immediately, see, that's the, you begin to slow fade back into, I've got something to offer. I am undeserving of this. No, I, I'm deserving to not breathe another breath. I'm, I'm deserving to die right before you today. It is only by God's grace and, and coming to that realization for me when I was 19 of like, I thought I was really righteous and really holy and really good and all of those sorts of things. And then coming to the understanding that, man, I'm a dead man walking. See, Jesus declares to, to, to those who have come to understand that it is God's grace for you to come to that place. It's His grace that allows you to see a glimpse of who you and I really are. It's His love, it's His kindness as He places that into us. When, when someone comes to this realization, that is when salvation takes place. That is, that is when the, the resurrection within our lives begin to take place. As the commentator and pastor preacher would say, Kent Hughes, poverty of the Spirit is something that we never outgrow. In fact, the more spiritually mature we become, the more profound will be our sense of poverty. Ladies and gentlemen, I can testify to that. At this great experience, and, and Pastor Justin and, and Brian 
um, that work with Hope House, and we have the program living that a lot of you guys know about. That that several of us are involved in here, and Pastor Justin works with those those guys every day. And I was talking to one of the guys this week, and man, it comes from massive, massive, terrible family life. I mean, this this man's story is that I mean, major meth addict. I mean, even to the point where he was he was pimping out his girlfriend, telling her to go turn tricks so that, that she could bring him back the money so he could go buy drugs. And he told me this week, he goes, man, he said, you know, being in this house and hearing about the gospel every day and being in these Bible studies, you know something I began to realize? I didn't realize how much sinning I was actually doing. And the longer I'm in this house hearing about the gospel, I keep getting taught more sins that I was committing that I never knew were even sins. Yeah, I've been following Jesus now for since I was 19, like I told you. But And so by God's grace, I, I've not fallen into any major addictions. You know, all those things that initial believers, a lot of them have to come out of. But as I continue to grow in my relationship with Jesus, it is now the smallest things that I begin to pick up on by God's grace that are unreflective of Him in my life. And that's spiritual maturity. You know what's interesting? Pastor Justin just had to leave because that guy I was just telling you about is getting baptized at our Christ Fellowship Church this morning. Because he's come to the realization he's not God. Now, does he have it all together? No, my, my friend's God does not have it all together. But he has come to the understanding that, man, I'm a sinner, dead, and lost without Jesus. His mom is also an addict. In and out of prison and jail. She called him randomly this week. And she was telling him about all the mess that she's involved in. And on the phone, Pastor Justin and some of the other guys that work there, they got to hear this conversation. And this guy, on the phone with his mom, who's also a drug addict, says, Mom, you just... The problem is, is, Mom, you need to give your life to Jesus like I have. That's your problem. That's his mom, yo. That's his mom. Does he have... Does he know the Greek? Nope. <laughs> Okay, this is the most schooling he's probably ever gotten is what we're giving to him daily in the Bible studies. And he's telling his mama, who's a drug addict, "Mama, you need Jesus. That's what you need." And he's probably cussing every other word as he's telling her, "You need Jesus." That's how raw he is. But he knows he's come to a moment. I close with this. When when Todd and I were in Haiti, you know, we spent a lot of time here in a vehicle. To go two miles, it takes like hours. You had to crisscross back across town all over the place, and you, you've got to imagine not streets like ours, but but pretty thin, narrow streets. A lot of them not asphalt, you know, cobblestone, stone. Um, there are there's dirt everywhere, dirt all up in the air. Um, there, there are vehicles, but no one believes in obeying traffic laws. 
All right? So you don't stop at a four-way stop. Everybody just meets in the middle, and then you kind of jockey for position until somebody lets you go, and they're weaving in and out of each other. And whenever you decide you want to pull a UE, you just block traffic, you know, go there. There are tons of random animals that Todd and I always ask every time we go, like, who owns those? Um, goats everywhere, thousands upon people just walking, moving up and down. and So it's just very narrow. There's a certain smell that is there. In a lot of places there's, and this would be a great illustration for hell, it's, it's what Gehenna means. Gehenna means a trash dump where there is a constant smoldering of fire, which is also translated to mean hell in a lot of situations. It's the illustration that the Bible gives us. In a lot of places in Haiti, there are just massive heaps of trash that are always burning on the side of the road. And we kept passing this guy, and, and Todd would see him, and we would pass by and pass by and pass by. And there was this big mound of trash that we kept passing almost every day that we were in a vehicle. I mean, as, as long as probably this room is. We're talking about bottles, paper, um, people just take table scraps. Also, sewage is running alongside of it. And every time we would go by it, I would see this gentleman... And it's just permanently engraved in me. He sitting in that trash, and, and one day I saw him eating, like picking through the the trash. He was in the same spot every time we passed by, just right there, eating, plumaging. Young guy, I would say in his twenties, the best I could tell, just like covered in dust. And the last day that we were driving by, I got to see him. But this time, I noticed something different that I'd never seen before. And again, thousands of people everywhere. This man's eating the trash, lives in that trash heap, and he's naked. Just naked. On the side of the road, covered in dirt, eating trash. And that's where he lives. My initial gut reaction is to feel sorry for that man, which I think we should mourn for all sin. But for me, the the major takeaway that took place in that moment, in the back of a vehicle being beat to death as we drove along, is Eric, you're that guy. You're that man. See, when I see myself as that man, I can help that man differently. But when I see myself as that man in God's eyes, I realize how much help I really need. And I told Todd, I think for like two, the last two days, I was like, man, I, just, I cannot get that dude out of my mind. Because I'm that man. Not in a physical sense. I live in a house. I've got two cars, you know, two kids, a dog. I eat. But in a spiritual sense, I am that man. And I pray that God would never allow me or allow you to forget it.
Because when you come to that moment, you are blessed. And you will be greatly rewarded. This